Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all this morning. Awesome uh, marriage retreat going on right now up in Arkansas. Uh, We went over and spent a couple of days with them. Had 132 there. A few had to back out for different family reasons and stuff, but Matt Barnhill's bringing truth. And man, the authenticity and the transparency and the growth in their marriages. If you get a chance to do that, super highly recommend it. Uh, It's really a lot of fun and uh, really, really good for us. So y'all pray for me today. Um, I've brought paper notes. And the reason is, is I looked down at my iPad and it had 11 on the battery. So we, we, may, uh, we may, you may get just a half of a sermon a day or a little piece of one. You're like, that's okay. That's okay. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we have and for, man, the beautiful praise music. And um, thank you for that team that leads us every week. And Lord, we need your truth now. We live in a world that doesn't really believe or understand truth anymore and So help us to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's get our Bibles out and go to John chapter 14. I'll set the scene. Uh, John chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. They've gone through the Lord's Supper. And, uh, you know, as they're leaving, man, the the end of the Lord's Supper is really a downbeat. I mean, because um, that's when he's really starting to talk about Judas' betrayal. and, And then, you know, everybody's like, is it me? Is it me? Who could it be? And... Uh, and then he turns around and he goes, look, every one of you is going to deny me. Every one of you is going to fail. Um, and so now they've kind of left the upper room. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're not there yet. And so as they walk, they talk. And, you know, Peter's like, hey, hey, Jesus, uh, you know, if everybody else falls away, I'm not going to fall away. I'm your guy. You can count on me. <clears throat> and Jesus, of course, if you're familiar with that story, he looks at him and goes, hey, Peter, Look, man, you're going to deny me three times tonight, okay? Um, And man, that just sent shudders through the whole team because they kind of looked at Peter, you know. Peter was kind of their ex officio leader, and he was kind of the guy that would do the things that everybody else wished they would do. And now Peter is going to fail, and if Peter fails, we're going to fail, and he's already said we're all going to fail. And so it's really a, a scary moment for them. Uh, the, the, the future is very uncertain. What they thought was going to happen, uh, everything was going to be up and up and up, and everything's going to, you know, we're going to follow this movement, and we're going to have these beautiful seats in the kingdom, and everybody's going to look to us, and all of a sudden, this whole thing's starting to come unravel. And so in 14, Jesus kind of turns and begins to pour encouragement into them. And he basically begins to talk about what's going on in them right now. He's going to talk about, you know, what's going to happen in the future, And it's really down to the core of you guys are going to wind up doing incredible things. You're going to change the world. uh, But first, you've got to be changed. And if I if I look at this and this is such an important passage, uh, it's one of those passages that's probably quoted as much as anything else. So I didn't really want to speed through it. I don't want to skip across it or dance across it. I want to bear down on it. And there's there's really four ideas in John 14, in my opinion, and if I had to summarize the essence of those, I would, I would do it in these four words, perspective, dependence, purpose, and provision. 
Now, we talked about perspective last time. You know, it's in the first few verses. He says, do not, in 14.1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And, and we talked about this if you were with us. If you weren't, you know, you can pick it up and, and kind of catch up. But uh, the trouble that's around us sometimes gets in us. And it has a way of seeping into our hearts and filling us with anxiety. Now, look, I can't do anything about the trouble that's around me. Trouble's going to come. I'm going to have hurt. You're going to have hurts. You're going to have heartaches. People are going to disappoint you. There's no guarantees in this life. Even as a believer, there's no guarantee you're not going to go through financial hardship. You're going to have some health issues. There will be problems in your family. I mean, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but we can't have this Christian determinism that says, if I just love Jesus enough, that everything's going to go my way. Because when it doesn't go your way, you're going to think I didn't love Jesus enough. The truth of the matter is we're going to have trouble. Uh, you know, we have this idea that if I'm a perfect parent and I do everything perfectly, that my kids are going to turn out perfect. And I always want to say, well, you know, your children have the same choices you had and you didn't turn out perfectly. Um, God was the perfect parents. Look what happened to him. Uh, I mean, he, he got Adam and Eve. And then look at his grandkids, Cain and Abel. You know what I'm saying? And so we're going to have trouble. I can't do anything about the trouble around me, but I have to deal with the trouble that's in me. And so he says, don't let your heart be troubled. That's a participle, but it's in the imperative. Stop letting your heart be troubled. Uh, and so I've got to take control of that. And, and I gave you three things last week. First of all is remember to believe. He said, you believe in God, remember that. Because when we begin to have trouble, we forget what we believe. Uh, and, and really, that's when you need to believe the most. You know, I went to Hebrews 11. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. And that's when you need to hang on to faith. You've got to remember to believe. And then you've got to remember who to believe. Remember? Believe in God. Believe also in me. In the same way that you grew up with a general understanding of who God is and belief in God, you've got to get very specific and trust me. Believe in me. And then he says, we got to remember what to believe. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, right? And so God's got a home for us. But that home is not here. And it's not now. So don't fall in love with the scenery. You're just passing through. Everything's temporary. In a very real way, we're vagabonds and vagrants. We're, we're troubadours. We're travelers. Uh, this is not our home. In the Bible, uh, in the old days, the, the church would call people pilgrims. You know, because they're on a journey or, or, you know, we're sojourners, strangers, aliens in this land. And that is all to create perspective because if this isn't my home and if I have a home that I'm going to that I've never seen, then what happens in this life is not the end of me. And that can deal with me. You know, my wife um, sometimes used to really worry and she could worry and then let worry kind of build and that worry kind of pile up on her. And one day, you know, and it can easily turn into anxiety and other things. And one day she said to herself, what's the worst thing that could happen to me? And she said, the worst thing that could happen to me is I die. And if I die, I've already got a home and I go to live forever with Jesus in heaven. So what's so bad about that? And that single affirmation of faith 
applied to the worry and, 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 and trouble in her heart changed her life completely. I'm telling you, she still worries. She still struggles from time to time with anxiety. But it's, it's, it's a tool that she has in her bag to deal with it as she applies the faith that she has, creating the perspective she needs to drive worry out of her heart. And that's what Jesus is saying to these guys. They've got trouble all up in their heart. And what he's saying is, lift your eyes, rise above the chaos, change your perspective. And then the second thing in the second section, and the one I want us to really deal with today is, and I want us to park here for a while, is he implies that we have to learn dependence. We have to learn dependence. And I, I love that song that Elise just sang, you know, teach me to abide. Uh, that's really what he's talking about here. And so let's, let's open this up and let's really uh, uh, sort of dwell on it for a minute. Um, here's the problem we have. We're called to be dependent, <laughs> but we love our independence. And that's our struggle, isn't it? We love to be, Americans are independent. Southerners are more independent. Texans are the most independent. <laughs> you know, when I came here from Texas, one of the struggles I had was figuring out whether you guys were genuine or not. And, and here's how it works. In Texas, if something bad happens in your life, they're not going to immediately jump to your rescue because they don't want to embarrass you by helping you. I know that sounds weird. So if you fall down, nobody's going to immediately run over, grab you, and try to pick you up. They want to stand there and watch you for a minute, sort of like a cat that got hit by a car, and they want to figure out whether or not you can get up on your own because it's really embarrassing for me to have to help you. That's how independent they are. In Louisiana, if you fall down, you're going to get suffocated by about 50 people jumping on you, and they start praying on you, and it's like, <laughs> you know. It was hard for me to realize you guys just love that way. But that rugged independence tends to lead us into self-reliance, and that's where we get into trouble, and that's where the struggle is this morning. You can't do it all. See, we have this idea, I've got to do it all I've got to know it all. I've got to create it all. And you can't do it all, know it all, or create it all. And so that's really the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? The whole point of the gospel was to say, you can't do this. I mean, that was the point of the law. Read Romans. The law, you know, the Jews mistook this. Paul said the law was given so that we would be aware of the absolute standard of the holiness of God. Not so that you would think that you could achieve it but just to make you aware of your need for mercy and grace. But the Jews misunderstood that, and so they thought that they could create this system of legalism that they could somehow achieve the righteousness of God. And in the process, they not only elevated uh, their understanding of their own performance beyond what it really was, but they also dragged down or denigrated the absolute virtue of the law. I mean, when Jesus was giving the, the, the clear teaching on the law in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with the bookends. He says, uh, therefore, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then at the other end, when he ends it in his conclusion, he says, you therefore are to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you want to do it by the law, there it is. You got to be better than the Pharisees. You got to be perfect. And in between that, he talks about the law. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who's angry in his heart has already committed murder. Yikes. You shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you, a man who lusts after a woman in his heart has already committed adultery. And so do you see the standard of the law? And the purpose of that was to make us aware of our need for grace and to create dependence. And that's really the essence of what he's saying here uh, today because you can't do this on your own. That habit you have, that addiction you have, what's the first statement in a 12-step program? Who knows it? I'm powerless over my addiction and I need someone greater than me, right? That's a build I paraphrase, pretty close. You're powerless over your sin too. And so Jesus begins to make us aware of our need for dependency. You know, as I begin to think about this and pray over this, that's, that's really where I, I begin to land. And so it starts like this. He said, I, and I see this in the conversation. He says, uh, verse 4, and you know the way where I'm going. <laughs> and they're like, that's such an awkward thing to say in that moment. He said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Where I am, there you, you'll be because I'm going to come again and get you. And then he goes, and you know where I'm going. And I'm like, no, they don't know where you're going. Now, to be fair, he has repeatedly said, I came from the Father, I'm going back to the Father. For example, John 7, 33, and this is just one of those times, Jesus said, I'll be with you only for a little while longer, and then I'm going to go uh, to the one who sent me, right? And so I'm thinking, even if they remembered that, which I doubt, did they have any idea what that really means? And so Thomas says what all the rest of them are thinking in verse 5. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And I'm so with Thomas here. You know, Stedman says, we call him Doubting Thomas, but we really ought to call him Honest Thomas because he just stated what everyone else was thinking and he had the courage to say it. First of all, we don't know where you're going. And secondly, we don't know the way to get there. And I, I wonder if he didn't say that in frustration. I'm wondering if you can't hear some frustration in his voice, maybe a bit of a tone, like you might, you might say to your wife if you're a little frustrated with her. You know, it's all about the tone, right? Well, what's interesting to me is that when Thomas expressed his doubts and he raised his questions, Jesus comes back with the greatest definitive statement of his nature that he ever gives in the entire Bible. And I wonder from that if it isn't okay for us to express our doubts. Sometimes we think, oh, well, I can't say what I really feel because, you know, he's God and I'm not. But, you know, then I go to Job who had everything done. Here. You know, the, Job lost his health. He lost his wealth. He lost his kids. The only thing that was left to him was, a, was his wife who was a horrible human being. You know, if God allows you to be tempted like Job was and, or somebody in your life and you're the only person left, that's not a good thing. Job's wife went to him and said, curse God and die. What a joy she must have been to come home to in the evenings, you know? It's like, wow. But Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And now listen to the rest of that. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. I'm going to trust him, but I'm going to express my questions and doubts. And I saw that with John the Baptist when, you know, he was getting word that Jesus was hanging out with sinners and doing all this other stuff. And he says, he sends word to him, are you the one or do we look for another? And, you know, I heard a guy say when John the Baptist said his worst about Jesus, Jesus said his best about John. He said, what would you do? You go out to see a reed blown in the wind? I'm telling you, you saw the greatest man ever born of women. And so it's okay to express, <coughs> excuse me, our questions. He can handle our questions. But now listen to me. If you're going to raise those questions, you need to be willing to receive the answer. 
And so here's the answer in verse 6. Jesus replied, I am, and notice this, the question was how to get to heaven. The answer was, I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Man, I read that and I turn that over as probably you have because you've read this verse before. And I'm like, what's the central point here? What's the central point? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What's the central point? I think the central point is this. You have to depend on me. It's all about me. It's not about you. You have to depend on me. And so um, here's, what I, here's where I come away with this. First of all, I depend on Jesus for my salvation. He said, I am the way. And you might say, wow, that's pretty narrow. I mean, that's so definitive. It's so, I don't know, not inclusive. And in our world, inclusiveness is everything, right? So Jesus is being so narrow. What about all those people who are trying a different way? You know, my son lives in Vermont. He can live wherever he wants because he works online, and he loves Vermont. I accuse him of moving as far away from me as he could possibly get because that's where he is. He's in Vermont. He loves snow. He loves seasons. He loves the whole Vermont thing. So that's where he lives. And so that means that to see him, we go to Vermont every year. And Amy and I both hate to fly because of all the travel we've done in missions and stuff like that. And so we drive, and it's like a three, four, eight, four day drive to Vermont. And so what we've done is we try to take different routes to Vermont. Sometimes we'll go up through Ohio, sometimes we'll go through the Carolinas, sometimes we'll go up through Virginia, you know, and all of those different roads have different, you know, this is a beautiful country. And to see it all, you know, just driving is kind of cool. Um, and some of them take longer. Some of them are more scenic. Some of them are, are more trouble. Some of them, you know, are, are quick. But they'll all get you to Vermont. Doesn't matter what route you take, you'll all get to Vermont. And there's a lot of people that think that's how you get to God. Just take any route. Some are harder, some are prettier, some are longer, but they all arrive at the same place. But here's the problem with that. I know where Vermont is. I mean, I can pull out a map and I know where Vermont is. But you tell me where God is. You pull out a map and point to God. How are you going to get to something or someone when you don't know where they are? When you plan a trip to Vermont, what do you do? The first thing is you find where you want to go, and then you back up from there and find where you are, and then you figure out what road will get you there, right? But you, the only person who knows where God is is the one who came from God. And how would anybody else know? There's no road map. You can't type, you know, you can't type God into Google Maps, you know, Garmin, Apple Maps. Where are you going, God? And so as a result of that, everybody's going their own way. You know, I, I'm reminded of this scene from Alice in Wonderland when she's talking about the Cheshire Cat. Alice asked the Cheshire Cat, she says, uh, who, who was sitting in a tree, what road do I take? And the cat asked, well, where do you want to go? I don't know, Alice answered. Then the cat said, it really doesn't matter, does it? You know, I suppose if you don't know where you're going, then it doesn't matter what route you take. And that's why so many people are going so many different directions. Jesus said this. He said, I'm the way. He didn't say, I'm a way. He said, I am the way. And we're like, wow, that's so narrow, isn't it? But isn't truth narrow? I mean, isn't truth that way? Two plus two is four. That's so narrow. Why can't it be four and a half or five? Well, because it's four. 
Is there any way for us to make it five? What if, what if in my heart I want it to be five? Well, okay, you can be wrong, but it's still four, right? Gravity is so stinking narrow. When I was a little kid, we, we watched Superman all the time. We all wanted to be Superman. So me and several of the buddies in the neighborhood, we got in our whitey tidies. We went out in the front yard and we tied a, a, a towel around our neck with a clothespin and we climbed up that, there was a grate on everybody's house. It was sort of an ornamental grate and you could climb it. It held up the front porch that was over the front door and, and you could climb that thing. It had like ornamental flowers or leaves or something in it. And we'd climb that and get on top of the house and we were all gonna fly. And the minute we jumped off the house, what happened? Gravity crushed our dreams because gravity is so stinking narrow-minded. But that's the way truth is. Salvation is like gravity. It won't bend to your whim. There's only one way. You can't deny it. You can't fight. You can fight it if you want. You can have other opinions about the way, but you're not going to get there because the only way to get to the Father is through the one who came from the Father. The only one who knows where He is is the one who's already been there. And so I trust Him for my salvation. And then I depend on Him for truth. He said, I am the truth. Again, that's such a narrow thing. He doesn't say, I am a truth. He says he is the truth. And that seems so exclusive. You know, postmodernism says there's no such thing as only one truth. And I often hear people talk about my truth and your truth. Oprah Winfrey uses that phrase a lot. Well, that's your truth. And let's applaud everybody because the best thing in the world you can do is share your truth. And, and, and in, uh, you know, in deference to Oprah, uh, when she says that, when she uses it that way, what she's really talking about is the person's story, that that person's story, but she uses the word truth. And it's really not their truth because, I mean, my story is my story. That's my interpretation of the events that have occurred in my life and how that has shaped who I am. I get that, but it's not necessarily truth because I don't always accurately interpret the things that have occurred in my life. And sometimes those things have changed me and sometimes they haven't and sometimes they should have. But when you say, well, that's your truth, well, that's so definitive, Right? And some people will use it for their own preference or their own opinion. This is my truth, right? And the, the problem is when you do that, what happens is um, that uh, you, you begin to take control of truth. I mean, you can have your opinions and preferences, just don't call it truth. Because your opinions are going to change and your preferences are going to change and truth doesn't change. And here's the problem. When I call my opinions and preferences my truth, then truth becomes something I own and I control and therefore it's whatever I want it to be. And that means I can't debate you on it because it's your truth. It's no longer your opinion. I can debate your opinion. I can question your preferences, but I can't say anything about your truth because that is your indisputable truth, right? Now, people who use this language try to be deferential because we have to be inclusive. And for me to say it's my truth implies that I control truth and I know that that's not fair to you, so what I say is, okay, that's my truth, you have your truth. And so you have your truth, you have your truth, you have your truth, you have your truth. For you, Jonathan, two plus two can be four and a half if you want. Okay, that's your truth. I'll have my truth. 
We all have got our own truth. What happens when your truth collides with my truth? Well, then you can't have your truth anymore. You're canceled. That's our world. That's the world we live in. And you know, in a strange way, this really is the problem of psychosis. It's almost like a psychotic. You know, someone said the difference between a neurotic and a psychotic is this. A neurotic builds castles in the air and the psychotic lives in them. And with psychosis, you can't really change them through reason or rational thought. They have become fixed in their opinion. One of my favorite stories on this, I think I've said it before, but I like it too much so I can say it again. Plus, y'all are like me, you forgot everything. So uh, James Dobson would tell this story about this clinician that's on this psych ward who has come to believe that he can somehow reason people out of psychosis. And there was a guy on the ward that thought he was dead. And that's what he's telling everybody. I'm dead. And they're like, are you dead? Yeah, I'm dead, man. Been dead for years. And so one day he, he comes up to him. He goes, are you dead? And the guy goes, yeah, I'm dead. He goes, let me ask you a question. Do dead men bleed? The guy thinks for a minute. He goes, I don't think so. No, dead men don't bleed. He said, give me your finger. He pulls his finger out, takes a pen out pricks his finger and squeezes a drop of blood and said, what do you think about that? Guy looks at it for a minute and he goes, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. <laughs> That's the same psychosis of this confused world. And, it's, and it plays out in so many different idiotic ways. The whole gender experiment, uh, and, and that's going to lead you to a 50-year-old guy who's in a swim competition with 16-year-old girls. That happened last week. I'm not making this stuff up. And that's because everybody's got their own idea of truth, right? Here's the difference between the biblical worldview and the postmodern worldview, and it really comes down to truth. Postmodernism says truth is relative, Believe whatever you want. Change the truth to suit yourself. The biblical worldview says we cannot change truth. We can only be changed by the truth. And I only grow when I stop trying to change the truth and instead allow the truth to change me. That's when I grow. In fact, the process of discipleship is the process of growing in truth. It's, it's, it's where I no longer force truth to fit my mold and I no longer allow the truths of this world to conform me to their image, but I become conformed to the image of Christ as His truth takes precedent over my life. We're back to that verse in Romans where it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that renewing of your mind is the process by which the lies that I have lived with are replaced with truth. That's the process. That's why it's so important to pour the truth of God's Word into us constantly because the Word is truth and that's the only truth that will change us. And so rather than me trying to control the narrative of truth, I allow truth to change my life because Jesus is the truth. And so I depend on Him to understand what truth is and consequently what life is. That's that third thing. I depend on Jesus for life. And I'm kind of back to John 8 again on this, you know. Jesus had this big group of people following him, and the Bible says that he said to those who were following him, if you abide in my word, if you depend on my word, remember that song we just sang, abide. If you abide in my word, then you are, then you are truly disciples of mine, true disciples as opposed to false disciples. You're not just a person who comes to church, ticks a box and goes home, ticks a box and goes home, but you're a person who is genuinely intent on replacing lies with truth. 
If you abide in my word, then you will know the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. John 10, uh, 10, I came that you may have life and have it, what kind? Abundantly. And that word abundant, whenever it was used of quantity, it meant superabundant or excessive. And whenever it was, uh, when it was used of quality, it meant superior or best. And so in essence, Jesus said, I came to give you a life that is bigger than you ever dreamed and better than you could possibly imagine and a new life that is longer than this life on earth. But you can't do that. And you certainly can't do it on your own. It comes through one person, Jesus, who is the what? The way, the truth, and the life. And so I have to depend on him for my salvation. There's nothing I can do that's ever going to compensate for my sin. The standard of God is too holy for that. Have you ever depended on Christ for your salvation? Then I depend on Christ for my sanctification. Abide in truth. Your word is truth. And the more that I abide in His truth, the more my life becomes conformed to the image of Jesus. Are you abiding in His truth? Are you allowing His truth to become transformative in your life? And He's the life. And so when I... When I depend on Him for my salvation and depend on Him for my truth, the net benefit of that to me is I get an abundant life. Is that where you want to be today? You know, I think it would be so appropriate if we would just make some commitments about dependency because our whole world is screaming at us, be independent. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Don't let anybody make you feel differently than you are. You've got to be your own person. And yet here's God's Word calling us to dependency. Jesus, I'm going to depend on you for my salvation, for my sanctification, for my life. Would you like to make that your commitment? What an appropriate thing it would be. See, I don't believe that we're going to change unless we make commitments. So here's my commitment, and I hope you'll join me in it. God, I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to start this week. I'm going to depend on you. Would we pray that together? Would you just pray with me? This is a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, right now in this place, Father, I admit my self-reliance. I confess my need for independence. And I say, I will live an independent life, but only as it depends on you. And so, Father, I will depend on you. I'll depend on you for my salvation. Best I know how, I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to depend on you for my transformation. God, make me into something that that I quite honestly am not. Make me more like Jesus. Pour your truth into my life. And Father, I'm going to depend on you for my life. And so when those worries and anxieties and stresses begin to mount up in me, I'm going to remember that you're in control and I'm not. Give us an abundant life. Father, we thank you that in Christ we are free. And I pray for those that need to be free today. It's it's an ironic thing that in order to be free, we have to be dependent. And so I pray that they would, if they don't know Christ, depend on you for salvation. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, to begin to really depend on your truth for our transformation. 
And Father, for all of us to depend on you for our life. Thank you that that's what you are. It's not just what you do. He said, I am. That's what you are. Be that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.